Hey everybody, welcome to an all new episode of Stuff Said with Greg Shegel. I am Greg Shegel, your host for this show. Thank you for tuning in, downloading, streaming, however you're listening to the show. I thank you. I thank you for listening to past episodes. I thank you in advance for listening to the episode you're about to listen to. Today I'm talking to Frank Pitteris. That may not be a name you know. Frank was an editor at DC Comics, Marvel Comics, Nickelodeon Magazine. And as was the mantra of my first boss at Marvel Comics, Tom Brevoort, who I believe has been mentioned at least once in every episode so far and probably will continue to be mentioned. Can't help it. He was my first boss. I learned a lot from the guy. Uh, But one of his mantras was, creators get the credit, editors get the blame. It is entirely possible that I have even said that, that specific mantra in past episodes and may say it in future episodes. It was a mantra. Going to be repeated. I think that's the nature of a mantra. Anyway, for that reason, sometimes you don't know who the editors are. I mean, I think most lay people don't know who the editors are. A lot of people don't know who directs movies. They know who the stars are. And to a certain degree, an editor is not the star. Uh, But Frank was my editor quite a bit. And we're going to talk about that in in this conversation, obviously. Well, maybe not obviously. But we're going to talk about that in this conversation. And we're also going to get into stuff that uh, sort of opens a window or opens a door into sort of how... How an editor thinks, or at least one editor, in this instance, that editor being Frank Pitteris. So, without further ado, let us begin talking, or let me begin talking, and you will begin listening to the stuff said with Frank. aware that in my entire comics career you have been my editor on 90 percent of the stuff i've done get out yeah yeah you were well my first job i didn't know who you were yet but then you started working at marvel and gave you my second job in comics which was what if one 13 13 what if iron man were dr strange it's what if it was what if tony stark were sorcerer supreme but yeah that was that was my second job in comics written by chris duffy yes yeah so most of the work I did at Marvel was for you. I did two issues of What If. The final one. And a Generation X. You did? Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> it was right when you left. Okay. Was that around the time of the crossover with X-Men? It was um, some sort of big event. I don't remember a crossover. I do know that they got their new costumes. Did the, you design them? No. Okay. Dodson designed them. Makes sense. But somehow I got to draw them first, <laughs> which didn't make a lot of sense. Nice. But um, yeah, it was Generation X 51. Okay. And then I also did a cover of X-Man for you over lunch. I don't remember that either. Yeah. <laughs> I penciled it over lunch and Scott Koblish inked it overnight. Wow. Yeah. And, so those, and then you left Marvel and years later we worked on SpongeBob stuff uh-huh. for a good long time. Yeah. There was a what? Uh, eight year hiatus, would you say? If even? Not even. Okay. okay we'll, we'll, we'll build we'll the there. timeline. But right. the point is you've been my editor for the longest. Like you're my editor. There you go. That's what it comes down to. Hello. Exactly. So when you first showed up at Marvel, you were coming over from DC Comics. Not directly, but yes. Not directly. Yeah. I left DC. This is a rough estimate. Okay. Uh, February of 97 or thereabouts. Um, and I just quit. I didn't go anywhere. I left DC with no prospects whatsoever <laughs> <laughs> after eight years of service. Right. And, and at uh, that point, you were a full editor. Yes. Okay. Uh, and... I had no plan, and I ended up uh, spending most of a summer as a production assistant on USA Up All Night. All right. Starring Gilbert Gottfried. So that, that was, was the second iteration, right? The first iteration had that lady. Rhonda. Right. Well, Rhonda was Fridays, and Gilbert was Saturdays. Got it. And I never worked a Rhonda show. Okay. Although I heard that, you know, those shoots ran pretty late. That was lucky. <laughs> well, they were up all night. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Gilbert was a breeze. Okay. So I did that for a while, and... There was an opening at Marvel, and I don't know how I heard about it, but I figured, what the hell? Right. So I applied, and I interviewed with Bob Harris. And I guess even though I'd been gone from D.C. for a while, 
Bob saw me as somewhat of a catch because I came from the Superman group. My Superman was kind of hot back then. So I interviewed and within like a day, he called me back and was like, you got it. And that's when I started. And you started when? October-ish of 97. All right. So we started at the same time. Close to it. Pretty much. Because I started October, mid to late October of, of 97, if not early November. Okay. I think you were there when I started. So maybe we were off by a week somewhere. That's, I did not Unless realize. I never went next door to check it out. I, I right. don't know. <laughs> no, no. I, I spent more of my time bopping into other offices yeah. than anybody coming right. into ours. Our office, I think, was a little scary to people. Yeah. Well, we're you were two, there with Dad. <laughs> and we were also two big guys. Like, Tom right. and I, I don't know. I think we cut imposing figures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Except I behaved disproportionately to my peers, <laughs> maybe. So that, that's sort of my first question. Is we're working there. I knew Jason, who was your assistant. So I'd go into that office like the goon I was in the office. Your take at the time was, this guy's entertaining or... This guy keeps coming into this office. It's going to be a problem. Well, when you start at a new place, it's nice to have people come and talk to you. So I was happy for that. You know, Jason has a lot of energy. Yes. So we had no trouble finding things to talk about all day long and things to do. But it's always nice to have little guest appearances to break up the day, you know. And you get people, you know, certain interns or whoever who you'd rather not come in. But there are people like yourself who are welcome and entertaining. So that was good, you know. And then I found out you can draw. So even better. How long... You're, this is probably something you don't remember, but how long did it take me to start angling for work? I don't remember you angling for work. I remember, I mean, you're always doodling and stuff, and you always had ideas for stories. I remember that. And I know that I liked your work because I like that sort of clean, yeah. semi-cartoony style in general. So I feel like what if, I mean, this is a long time ago, yeah. but I was comfortable giving what if jobs to people who were sort of untested or new. So I had an opening, and it seemed like you'd be a good fit. Because I don't think it was a, a, a situation where, oh, my God, what if it's late? I, I'll just give it to Greg and get no, out no, the door. I, I actually specifically remember you gave me 113 because you were worried about the schedule. Because you had two issues available, 112 and 113. Uh-huh. 112 was a Kazar thing. That was really late. And that ended up being <laughs> super late. And, and I remember just thinking it was funny that you gave me the one that you were worried you wanted to give me more time, and I think I got it done before Koi oh, did. Yeah, and I don't know if I started one fourteen. How much <laughs> farther after that? But it's still funny. I waited a long time for that Kazar story. And yeah, so on what if you were giving Brian Vaughn early work? You gave Jay Ferb early work. You gave a bunch of guys. Yeah, you were like the the showcase at Marvel. <laughs> I've always been open to new talent, even at DC on on Steel. You know, on Superboy. I was fine with trying out new guys. I'm not a big fan of the policy of hiring people who are established stars. You know, you don't get anywhere with that mindset. Just in the comics market, the names sell the books, blah, blah, blah. Right. But but with what if, the character sold the book. Yeah, the what if and the the, the scenario. Right. There was the X-Men rule, which was like every third or fourth issue had to have an (laughs) X-Men on the cover. Okay. uh, To keep the sales going. And was that your rule or was that handed down? That was sort of in the air before I showed up. Okay. So there was like a, a gambit of Wolverine. They would just so Kelly in. sort of said, by the way, the third or yeah. fourth. Yeah. Like Bob didn't tell Rogue me. Rogue show up. Yeah. I remember Kelly advising me. Okay. That was the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And the book got canceled anyway. So not Which, much for that. Another thing that happened at Marvel is you were working on X Factor. Yes. Which became Mutant X. Yes. Which sort of dovetailed into my office, which also. you may or not remember. So at the time, you were developing Mutant X. <clears throat> And we were developing a book called Avengers World in Chains, which eventually became Avengers Forever. The reality hopping. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the original story, World in Chains, was a was a alternate reality story oh. where the Avengers were plunged into a world where, like, you know, one twist of fate sends things mm-hmm. awry. And because you were working on Mutant X and your book was launching first, Freeboard and Kurt, we're just like, we got to do something else. We can't have so many books in alternate reality. Right. That'd be crazy. Happening at once. <laughs> that would never happen. Which I also <laughs> remember being part of the reason there was never a sequel or anything else done with that last Secret Wars issue of, of What If. We came close. We came close. But then it also, it like, it got kiboshed because it would be yet another. I think that was ultimately the reason. Because it was post-Age of Apocalypse and there was all these, there, was, there seemed to be like a bevy of. Yeah. New Next was ongoing. It was still happening right. at the time. Because um, we, we, Jay submitted a proposal which got approved and you were doing designs or something. 
Yeah, no, we we got pretty. We got a decent. I know we got long. far enough that you had shown me the proposal, and then I came back with, "What if it ended this way?" We sort of tweaked the ending a little bit. I don't have any of those documents anymore. Neither Jay might, does. but I, I don't have anything. I think Jay probably has them somewhere. And I was psyched for that. So was I. No, my drawings, my designs for uh, Wonder Witch. Uh-huh. Those were up. Those were up <laughs> in my room somewhere. The, the daughter of Wonder Man and uh, Scarlet, Scarlet Witch. Witch correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I've actually yeah, had. At, at conventions, I've had a lot of people ask about that book, and they're fa- it has its following. Yeah, I mean, yeah, not a huge following, but there's a <laughs> they're following. Out there. Yeah, Mutant X came to be because X Factor was canceled, and Bob wanted to replace it immediately, like within a month. <laughs> so that's what we did. Actually, on my first day, uh, Bob took me around to meet the editors and, and what have you. And at one point, he sat me down and he was like, "Okay, here are your books." And it was like Excalibur. So, okay, that's going to be gone within a year. Uh, so don't worry about it. Maverick, uh, that's probably going to be gone too. Uh, most of my books from the day I showed up were on some kind of chopping block, which kind of scared me at first. Because I knew there was no hope of saving them. Like It seemed to have been decided that they were over. So did you think you were brought in to build new books? Or what? did you have an idea of why you were being brought in? Yeah, well, aside from Bob, you know, stealing me from D.C., I, I was the spinoff guy at D.C. I edited... Superman spinoffs. And then I show up at Marvel and I'm the X-Men spinoff guy. And I think Bob just kind of felt that I could do that kind of thing. And I was in the X group. So, you know, as books were being phased out, I think the plan was for me to just develop new X books to replace them. And, and did you have an affinity for X stuff? You've mm-hmm. always struck me as a, as a DC guy more than a Marvel guy. I was a hardcore DC kid. From I was reading comics before I could actually read. My okay. parents would buy them for me and I liked the pictures. You know, sure. and I learned to read and I kind of Got there. So I was a big hardcore, like pre-crisis DC kid. I always read Spider-Man comics of some kind, uh, Fantastic Four, some Avengers. But I didn't become a real Marvel fan until the Burn Claremont X-Men in the 80s. Uh, my first X-Men issue was 135, and it changed everything. You know? <laughs> and then I started buying back issues. So from there, I sort of, you know. Which one is one? I don't know numbers. 135 is a Dark Phoenix saga. It's the green cover where she's crushing the logo. Okay. And at that point, because nothing would ever be reprinted, I spent a fortune buying back issues because I had to have everything. So when I showed up at Marvel, I knew most of the X stuff. I'd been reading it by that point for long enough to be familiar. I didn't love all of it. I could have lived without the Age of Apocalypse kind of stuff. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. So, okay, when you were at DC, you yes. say you did all the spinoff books. You were doing all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Duffy edited Supergirl as well. So, okay. But, yeah, I was a spinoff guy. But you also built a couple of things on your own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, two things. One, in the, in the school of credit where credit's due, you came up with the title Birds of Prey. That's right. Right? Well, Greg, you knew. Yes, yeah. that, that, that is true. How did, how did that happen? Uh, Jordan Gorfinkel was editing the book. I think it might have been a one-shot at first or a miniseries. So uh, Jordan sent around an email saying, we've got this book with these two characters in it. We need a name. We can't call it Black Canary and Barbara Gordon. If you have a suggestion, send it back. And I had two. Okay. <laughs> one was Birds of Prey, and the other one was Vaginettes, <laughs> which clearly did not take. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I got credit in a letters page somewhere. And how did you – where did Birds of Prey come from? Canary is a bird. I know. Bats aren't birds. That girl and or, or Oracle, neither one of those are But birds. they're like, you know, they're birds, governor. Okay. You know. Got it. <laughs> there you go. Ladies, dames, right. broads, right. chickadees. Thank you. <laughs> The other thing you did that probably came in an era where there were a lot of cool books coming out of D.C. Uh-huh. that none of them really lasted. One of them was Major Bummer. Good book. The other was Young Heroes in Love. Yes, that's me. Which was a book you edited mm-hmm. and sort of spear, like launched into. Yeah, I developed that just before leaving D.C. Well, what happened was this was in the 90s, late 90s. And Melrose Place was really sort of happening back then. And I've always been a big soap opera fan. And having worked on superhero stuff, obviously from the whole time there, and then strictly on Metropolis-based stuff, mm-hmm. I was getting a little tired of yeah. living in Metropolis and doing the same sort of thing all the time. And Dan Rastler, knowing I had this love for soaps and wanting to write something on a freelance basis, he was an editor at the time, he pitched this book. It was meant to be a superhero soap opera. Mm-hmm. Uh, the original intent was to really sort of focus on the characters out of costume. We were never supposed to really see battles. It would be about their lives once they got home. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be very soapy. 
betrayals, sex, um, schemes, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, cliffhangers left and right. And the proposal went through a million iterations, but I was really into it. Sure. And uh, Barry Kitson was going to draw it for a while, then he backed out, and uh, he ended up you know, with Dev, Dev yeah. Madan. And yeah, it was a good book. And um, it lasted for <laughs> 16 or so issues. Which, again, nowadays, it might not have even gotten launched. Right, right. Uh, which is saying something, since these days, every book is a superhero soap opera, and That's you don't right. see battles. That's right. I mean, a majority of them. You can read Avengers comics now and just have it, it's 22 pages of conversation. Yeah. Which I dig, but I don't know. <laughs> That's everybody's cup of tea. <laughs> I, I think there's, there's a balance. I mean, I was actually recently rereading the Young Heroes in Love stuff in, mm. in anticipation of talking to you. But reading it, it had actually a really nice balance of a little bit of teasers here and there, things that are building, characters that are doing stuff. Um, surprisingly in costume almost all the time mm-hmm. not till issue seven that we even learn their names outside of the costume. Yeah, they do wear their suits constantly but i mean they're make they're wearing their suits when they're making out they're just in their costumes right. so it's interesting that while your intention was to build this thing that had no superheroes in it still there mm-hmm. i think it helped i think it helped move things along and keep you reminded that these are superheroes yeah yeah they had it had to be about superheroes living their lives and not about people you right. know who cares about well, you that's know, grocers and whoever they might have been. Pulsing. Well, I think that's what happens <laughs> with with books now. Is I wonder, like, okay, when are you going to show these guys doing something? Yeah, it's especially frustrating nowadays when there is a threat. So they'll spend all of this time talking about how this thing is coming and it's going to happen, and we better be ready to take care of it. But you never see it. Like, right, because then they know, talk about what to happen right. with the threat after five months when it's enough issues to be a collected edition. They'll get to the battle. Um, so frustrating and it's just a battle it doesn't have any there are no ramifications yeah i mean i've I've sort of fallen off a little bit but i feel like there's not even like did you see thor the movie thor yep whatever you thought of the movie there's that one sequence where thor puts the hammer on loki's chest (laughs) that was a nice bit it's a great bit i don't feel like we see bits like that in books like the power seem inconsequential right that's true across the board like i was telling somebody the other day we haven't seen flash make a big tornado in a really long time like, that's a cool thing. Right. He makes a big tornado. He hasn't walked through a wall. He hasn't vibrated his molecules to mm-hmm. create something that no. he could specifically right. do. He just runs really fast. And- but he's Barry Allen now, and that should be enough now, shouldn't it? <laughs> it's really boring. <laughs> Superheroes are cool, man. They are. I want them to be cool again. <laughs> you yeah. have a long wait. You left Marvel for no real reason. No, either. no, no. I left Marvel for a reason. <laughs> Look at you. You just walked out of DC. Are you going to lunch? You coming back? No, I'm not coming back. No, I, I, I gave notice when I left DC. I, was I know you nice gave about notice. Um, what did you leave Marvel for? I don't even remember. When I was working at Marvel, it was the bankruptcy era. Uh, there was that infamous day when half the editorial staff got laid off all in one fell swoop, yep. uh, including my assistant yes. at the time. But the atmosphere was sort of a downer. We were all waiting for the axe to fall. My analogy was we, we were like the band on the Titanic. We were all playing the instruments. We were right. all trying to put out comics, but the ship was just yeah. coming down. Right. And we were all smiles but for it was, the most part. It was rough because you didn't know. Like You yeah. thought you'd come to work and they'd just tell you. you know. Uh, but what happened was I'd, I had done some freelance work for Nickelodeon in between DC and USA Up All Night. They were reprinting a Rograts magazine that had been produced in the UK, and they just needed an editor to come in. Give it the once over, take out the Britishisms, you know, and I think get a cover done or something like that. And it was like a couple of hours a week I would show up and do this. And I moved on. And around early 99, I guess, uh, in the thick of this Marvel bankruptcy thing, uh, I wasn't planning on quitting. I didn't, you know, I mean, you gripe the way you gripe at any job. But I was happy there. But I got a call from the editor-in-chief at Nickelodeon Magazine. And she wanted to know if I'd be interested in coming back to Nickelodeon as a freelance editor to basically provide new content for Rugrats Comic Adventures magazine. So it was new stories, new covers, new everything, top to bottom. It was a freelance gig, which was scary for me because I was used to having a, you know, a salary and health Insurance. benefits. But I was like, you know what? Like you said, the ship is sinking. I might as well just go do this and you know, see what happens. Right. So I did. And I ended up freelancing it, well, on and off at Nickelodeon magazine for the better part of what? 12 years or something like that. 
Right. And then when you went there, Duffy was already there? Yeah, Duffy and I were at DC together, and then he left for Nickelodeon Magazine, I guess maybe two months before I did. So then you were both at Nick Mag. He was, he was on staff. Were, yeah. And you were there freelancing, doing the Rugrat stuff specifically. Yes. I left to Marvel in 2000, January 2000, mm-hmm. to go work at Nickelodeon. Much sure. like when I was at Marvel and I would hang out in the bullpen, when I was at Nickelodeon, I would go visit Nick Mag. <laughs> And be annoying. You're awesome. Or entertaining, <laughs> depending on your Because Nick Mac was a great place to work, but it was quiet. You know, people were focused and they, you know, they would have polite chit chat. You know, good morning. You know, they would yeah. talk about the work. But they weren't rowdy like we were used to working in comics. That's true. So you would come down and be like, okay, <laughs> we're going to have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think at that point, I'd sort of built my own sort of ego up to the point where I'd come in and... and Sort of bark at you and Duffy. I'm like, when are we doing Pete and Pete comics? <laughs> right. What's going on? Mm-hmm. You knew me. Yeah. But I feel like Duffy and, and Dave Roman just sort some of characters and... would look off to the side <laughs> and go, is he all right? Joking or is it serious? We can't tell. Uh-huh. And you have that effect. <laughs> <laughs> which, which brings up the, the question I've had forever. Yeah. And you might be able to answer this as somebody who gave me work. As that person that you couldn't tell if he was just making a giant joke or if he was genuine do you think that had a professional effect on me that like when i left marvel mm-hmm. people were just like that guy like i was kidding right like the whole time <laughs> like, he didn't want to be here at all right i don't think that was the case no <laughs> no sometimes i wonder no i don't think that was the case at all so when you were at nickelodeon at a certain point they started doing spongebob comics in pretty good measure well what happened was i was at nickelodeon doing the rugrats thing and that was finite uh they were doing the book in three volumes of 10 issues and when it ended, it ended. There was no pickup for fourth season, so to speak. So the job was over, and I was hoping that, that I could pick up as a full-time staffer or at least full-time freelancer or something, but that wasn't the case. So I was sort of like on my own again after having this sort of steady gig, and uh, I had a choice to make. And it was like, you know, what do I want to do with my life? And I'd always wanted to be a cop. So <laughs> there you go. I'd, I'd wanted to be a cop since I was a boy. A that is boy. something I didn't know. Yeah. So uh, I decided, uh, well, uh, this is my shot. So I took the test. I got a crazy high score. I got like 99.5 on, on the written. And I was also interviewing for like legitimate jobs at the same time because, you know, it's always nice to have a job where you're not going to get shot at every day. Yeah. So I interviewed at a magazine called Playthings, which was a trade magazine that covered the toy industry. Okay. And um, on the day of the physical and psych exam for the police academy, I was offered a full-time position at Playthings as a managing editor. And I thought, well, decide, pick, pick, pick one, you know, and again, more money and safety versus less money, long hours and bullet holes in my body. So I opted for the, the safe one and I did that for a year. And at the end of that year, uh, I was laid off for financial reasons. So uh, Duffy called me about this SpongeBob thing. Like, it just sort of worked out. Uh, They were producing new SpongeBob comics for international distribution, and they needed an editor. And would I do it? So I took it. And they showed up and they said, by the way, you're working with Greg Shegel. Yeah. Where where did you come from? Did I call you? I think I I was drawing SpongeBob for Nickelodeon licensing. So it was Mm. sort of a natural... I'd been I'd done some Jimmy Neutron comics for Duffy, including ones that I wrote, including ones that you wrote. Uh, yeah, so then I you start working there, and once again we are reteamed, mm-hmm. brave and the bold, the fast and the furious. You were going to be a cop. I was going to be a cop. All right, I would have been a damn good cop. This is now fascinating. <laughs> yeah, was anyone in your family a cop? No. Are you just a huge what, – what TV show was it that made you go, I want to be a cop? <laughs> well, I did watch police shows as a, as a kid. I was yeah. big, I'm still a big fan of Sarsky and Hutch. Um, was that know. the one? As a kid? Yeah. Well, I watched them all. I watched Charlie's Angels and Police Woman. I watched Beretta. Like, I want a bird on my I, shoulder. I watched Toma. Like, you name it, I watched I it. I know what that is. The Rookies. Love the Rookies. Didn't like SWAT very much. What about Barney Miller? Never cared for Barney Miller or Hill Street Blues. But Hill Street Blues was up against Knott's Landing, and that's not even a contest. So <laughs> I watched Knott's Landing for 14 years. Knott's Landing and Dynasty? Different networks. Yeah, but which, uh, which but, is yours? Are you Knott's Landing? Uh, Knott's Landing has a, in, in the long run. Knott's Landing versus show. Dallas? Knott's Landing. Knott's Landing is, is It's well written for most of, of the run, so yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but it, I didn't want to be a cop just because of TV. I mean, if that were the case, I'd want to be a spaceman to this day. Well, I guess <laughs> it sort of dovetails into stuff. So you're reading comics as a kid, mm-hmm. superheroes. Mm-hmm. 
top is sort of the you know costume. I guess I never I never really looked at it that way though. I, I would hear that sometimes when I would mm-hmm. bring it up. You know, like I had some sort of Ruben Diaz, especially had a long winded sort of rationalization for why I wanted to do this. Yeah, and it had to do with like basically being a superhero in my own way. And uh, no, I don't. I wasn't loopy. You know, right. <laughs> I just liked the idea of doing something good. You know, and just being that guy, just being the the you know, it's it's a it's a tough job that nobody wants to do. It's got to be done, and I don't feel like police get any respect. You yeah. could say the entire same sentence you just said. I swapped in teacher, right? Garbage man. Well, not garbage man. Come on, Greg. Am I personal respect? My personal lips garbage. You're a person that carries a gun. I might be a person who carries a gun. Uh, I never got to fire a gun, so I don't even know. That, well, I didn't know if I was going to be any good. I mean, I knew I wasn't afraid of doing the job. Hmm. Um, there were two things that were question marks. One was, can I fire a weapon with any sort of precision? And I knew that in the testing phase, like, that counts. You it's can not practice like practice that. You can learn. Right, right. Uh, but there's, during the testing phase, you have to score a certain mm-hmm. number of hits. Otherwise, you're out. They would drop you at the testing phase at, phase at any sure. given thing. If you couldn't run how many laps in a certain amount of time you're out. And the other thing was driving a car. I don't have a license. I've never driven a car. And you, need, you had to have a license by the time you graduated. And I was like, I don't know if I can drive a car. <laughs> um, do you have a license now? No. Wow. Do you, and... know, do you know I don't have a license? You want to hear that story? <laughs> I've had it. When I was a kid and I was in high school, we had driver ed class. My parents really thought I should take driver ed. This was important to them, even though I took the subway everywhere. So there were two sessions. There was a morning classroom session, which was at like 7.30 or some horrible time and there was an after school driving session once or twice a week i was a big fan of soap operas we didn't have a vcr at the time and the character <laughs> of laura was coming back to general hospital and i couldn't miss this so i would go home after school driver's ed or not walk in the door and my mother would say to me don't you have driver's ed today and i would say i took it at lunchtime and she would just accept this i did that for the whole semester because i didn't want to miss general hospital and at the end my mother was like so did you get your blue card which you need to get Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, and then it was never brought up again. She would occasionally tell me to go down and take my driver's test, but I had never gone to any of the classes, so I couldn't do that. And, uh, yeah, so – and here I sit, 44 years old, unable to drive. Now, unable to drive or just not licensed to drive? Unable – and well, I'd like to think that if I was being chased by zombies, I could get in a car and figure it out. Well, there's not going to be any gas at that point. Well, if in the initial wave of attacks, there would be gas. You're not just going to give up? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> No, I have a plan for the zombie apocalypse. What was in your head when you ran the scenario, even as a kid? Were you like, I want to be a detective. I want to be a cop on a horse. Like, did you have like an arc? Or I want to be a cop. I want a badge. I want to stop bad guys. Was it that simple? I wouldn't even say stop bad. I wanted to be a cop. I, I always, if I envisioned myself in the role, it would be in the car driving around, you know. Not that I sat there and, and had visions in my head of what this would be. Yeah. But uh, I never looked beyond that. You know, so but even when you if the detective went, thing came up at some point, maybe. But when you went to the academy, you were still just like the the, the cop. Yeah. Well, I never got to the academy. I took well, the when job. You got to, but just, yeah, those I mean, early stages. Right. It would have been, you know, you enter as a grunt and you and you out. You know, I mean, I might have crashed in. I don't know how I would have done. When I showed up at DC as a boy, I never thought. Okay, now that they hired me, I'm going to be an editor someday. I was just there, and I was like, ooh, this is great. You just showed up one day? I just showed up one day. That's right. Really? <laughs> I, took a, I took a seat, and I acted like I had been. No. I had a legitimate interview, and I was hired properly. Oh, but, wasn't uh, Michael J. Fox your secret of my success style? Were you in the mailroom, and you ooh, old reference. changed your clothes? <laughs> <laughs> no, I was uh, a secretary for like a year. Secretary answering phones or secretary filing? Uh, secretary, answer, I, I got hired to work in the special projects department, which was sort of like licensing, I guess, back then. This is 1989. Um, okay. And I was Joe Orlando's, what was on paper as administrative assistant, but what he insisted on calling a secretary. And uh, it was typing letters on a typewriter, taking dictation, longhand. Uh, he wanted his coffee black on his desk in the morning, and he did not want to have to ask for it. When I saw him coming, I was to get up, get the coffee, put it, put it down. All right. um, if he didn't get it, he would get grumpy. And uh, that sort of thing, you know, uh, making appointments, uh, a lot of sort of screening stuff for him. You know, if he was there, oh, Joe's busy in a meeting, that kind of stuff. Right. And I did that for a year. Um, and then I did <laughs> – this sounds terrible, but I quit after a year. Uh, <laughs> because what happened was, again, I was 22. 
Yeah, I was 22 years old. And working at DC was awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a dream come true. But like, I didn't want to be a secretary forever. And it got a little frustrating because it was an inner, an inner outer office kind of situation. And I was the secretary in the outer office. And Joe would have these meetings in his office with the door open. And there were these creative meetings. And I would hear them talking about the comics. And there were editors there who knew the stuff. But there were people in the room who did not have a clue as to what the hell was going on in the comics at the time or even before. Mm-hmm. You know, Hal Jordan, which, what? He has the ring, his costumes in the ring. And I would sit there at my desk, just shut up, all of you, you know, just getting very frustrated. Um, and after a, enough of this, you know, uh, I, I think I talked to Joe, because Joe was a good boss, about what's going to happen to mm-hmm. me here. Like, where, does, where do I go? And he was like, well, stick around long enough, and, you know, you'll see what happens. And I was like, ah, I need more of an answer than that. So I ended up resigning, and I turned in a letter of resignation and all. I was good to go. And Terry Cunningham, who was the managing editor of the DCU, she heard about it. And we'd been friendly. You know, we, we'd chat in passing. She heard that I'd resign, and she came to me, and she was like, come to my office. Let's have a little chat. And she wanted to know if I was sure about what I was doing. And I was like, well, this is why I'm doing it. And she said, what about if you could get a job in editorial? And I, was, I said, great. Uh, and she said that it would be, you know, grunt work, making Xeroxes and sending out FedEx packages, and I'd have to pay my dues there. But in the long term, I could work my way up through editorial. And I said, awesome. I would love to do it. She went to Joe. They had a meeting that I was not a part of. She got my letter back, and the whole thing was undone. And I did what she said. I made Xeroxes for a long time with Eddie Berganza, who is now, you know, executive hoo-ha over there. And, and that gave me a career. With a, still a, a passion for, for all this stuff on a content level. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still read the stuff. I always did. When I was editing comics at DC, this wasn't really the case at Marvel. I feel like the Marvel editors read their stuff. There were some editors who would take great pleasure in critiquing other editors' work. Sure. <laughs> so we know comics are getting read over there. But at DC, at the time, I mean, it's a lot of work editing comics. You know, there are deadlines in every direction, and everything's always late. You know, so there's not that much time to be lounging around reading comics. So a lot of folks back I then, sure, I found the time. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> but a lot of folks back then would, at best, kind of flip through, as they would put it, the comics, but not really read them. Um, but I always read them because I always liked them. I, I really never went through a phase where I hated comics and didn't want to read any. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read less. I've read more at any given point in my life. Um, sometimes to the point where I. I would buy more than I could keep up with. It's just like, you, have, you know, you have to have them and you'll get to them. That's some, you know how that is. Comics as an addiction. Yes. So I always cared. It, now my feel, even though I'm not in DC editorial, uh, my feeling is that these characters have existed long before I was born. And if they do the right thing, they'll exist long after I'm dead. But I feel like it's a certain, let's say disrespect to the legacy that people have inherited, where it's a lot of sort of ripping down what came before. You know, I'm not even talking about reality reboot because those sort of right. come and go. No, it's it's the it's the notion that it's been said now. These characters have been around a long time. Sometimes you have to break the toys, put them right. back together. Right. And I I happen to have a different take on it, which is find a new way to use the toy. Mm-hmm. You don't have to break it every time, or show the toy to a new kid, let him play with it. Right. So it seems these days, the tendency is to break, smash. Smash and jump up and down on. Was there, to your mind, a, a tipping point when this happened? Yeah. With identity was, crisis. Was it identity crisis? Absolutely. More so than Disassembled? Avengers Disassembled? That was fine because that Avengers Disassembled never disrespected what the Avengers were about, really. You know, they, I mean, their relationships change and they, the relationships are somewhat mature. They react to each other as real people would in that situation. But it didn't put the lie to what came before. It didn't take classic stories and corrupt them into something that they weren't, which is what Identity Crisis did. In terms of the way the characters are acting or introducing the Zatanna? Well, it it was two things. It was um, three, if you count Zatanna. You have the satellite era Justice League, which is what I grew up reading in the 70s, and Dr. Light's rape of Sue Dibney in a satellite. Okay, so right off, you're starting on shaky ground. You're saying that this happened then. Bad enough. Zatanna shows up and mind wipes Dr. Light. I never quite understood that because now you create a situation where he'll never feel remorse for his crime. So he's off the hook. 
But Sue is stuck with this horrible memory forever. Okay, so now we're – and all the heroes are in on this. The Tana is like spell casting left and right. Yeah. And then Batman shows up. And what do they do as a group? I think – I don't know. Green Arrow might have raised some, some objection. But as a group, they mind white Batman because he caught them. And they make Batman forget. Right. So it's just layers and layers of heroes not doing the right thing. It's not one flawed hero making a mistake. It's not Zatanna on her own doing this thing and being like, ugh. It's unheroic heroes. Yes. And I'm all for heroic, you know, flawed characters. Great. You know, Iron Man was an alcoholic. Great story. You know, Uh, you can go there. Hank Pym and his whole sort of spousal abuse thing. You can do that kind of stuff. But when you get to the point where heroes are doing things like this, and with with no repercussions whatsoever, like who are we rooting for? You know, who are the good right. guys here? And that's not the story that's being told. The story isn't about who are the good guys. We're still supposed to sort of get it and be on their side because they're wearing the brighter right. costumes. And I kind of find that objectionable. You think that comes to an inherent distinction where you know there was always that idea, or there seems to have been at one point that DC characters are too perfect. They're oh. all perfect. Look, growing up a DC kid. I heard that all the time, yeah. you know, because Marvel characters are real. Right. They're the real problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it seems, it seems that that's like there's a few things that the rubber band has snapped to the point where every character has to be flawed. Maybe, maybe not every, I'm casting grand, mm-hmm. but it also seems that, um, it's been like a, like a vertigo backwash uh-huh. into mainstream superhero comics. I mean, literally, because those characters are running around now. Well, before, the character started running around. It was a, it was like a thematic backwash mm-hmm. where Watchmen gets the acclaim and the quote unquote respect of the outside world. Uh-huh. Comics aren't just for kids. Comics are legitimate literature, right? And that has sort of fallen, has washed back. Where the original concept was, oh yeah, let's not do this with the Carlton characters. We don't want to destroy the legacy. Mm-hmm. Great new characters. Now it's like, wait, that stuff was awesome. Let's just do it. Yeah. To the point, you know, which is interesting because you did Young Heroes in Love. Correct. But they were all, all new characters. Yes. I mean, the one story where Superman shows up, it almost is a clear line of like Superman behaves a certain way. Uh-huh. And these characters don't yeah, function exactly. like superheroes right. yet. Yeah. They have not figured out what a superhero is. Mm-hmm. I'm or- all for adult content in comics. I love Preacher. Mm-hmm. You know, the Garth Ennis run on Hellblazer is one of my favorite runs of anything anywhere. Um, but... I don't want to see people getting raped in a Justice League comic. I don't want to see heroes mind-wiping each other. I, I don't want to see characters getting their limbs ripped off in full thriving color, you know, in a company-wide crossover. Like, how, why? Are you saying that seeing Ares ripped in half? <laughs> but here's the thing. Ares gets ripped in half in Avengers, and it's one super powerful moment in a year's worth of comics. You throw five DC comics on a table and you could find any kind of similar moments in almost any of them to some degree because the envelope is pushed further over there on a, on a steadier basis. I feel basis. like the argument can be made that you have to wait five years for something to happen in a Marvel book of that magnitude. <laughs> Whereas at DC it's happening all the time. I mean, it's, it's six of one half dozen right. the other. I mean, they're still making comics that are a departure. The train has left the station. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Comics aren't for kids anymore, which is, it's the, the general sort of consensus, yeah. you know, but so, they should be kid friendly, accessible to kids. Now, do you think that comes from, if you don't have kids, do you have a nephew or niece? No. Well, my rationale is that, um, because I read so many comics, I don't keep everything that I buy or get. So if I don't want it, I put a rubber band around it and I leave it on my front stoop because there are neighbor kids all sure. over the place, but I have to screen them first. And there was a time when I would have to screen the sort of dodgier stuff. Like I wouldn't put Major Brummer out, but something that was sort of, you know, off the beaten path. But now I have to screen everything from DC. I'm just not comfortable with it. With Marvel, not that I would even dream of throwing out a Spider-Man comic because I wouldn't. (laughs) But I feel like I I could generally put out a Spider-Man or Avengers comic, you know. Now, the the argument would be, hey, if you want to sell comics to – I was always using the number 60,000, but it's been sort of <laughs> culture used as 50,000. Like there's a 50,000 people that make up the bulk of right. mainstream direct market comics. One good super flu and we're all gone. That's right. it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at a certain point, that's who Marvel and DC especially, mm-hmm. that's who they're selling comics to. Right. 
because that keeps the wheels going somehow. But if the train has left the station mm-hmm. and the toys are broken, smashed, <laughs> what keeps you, who still reads the stuff, still has a love for and it? And still wants to get back into editing DC yeah. comics. Yes. How does that – how is that what, – What the hell? <laughs> yeah, because, because I can tell you on my own side, and yeah. I talk to other people about this. At this point, if I'm going to make comics, i got to make my own comics. i got to make a comic that is for – Anybody but those 50,000 people Mm -hmm. because there's hundreds of thousands of other people that are not those 50,000. So what keeps you so sort of impassioned for these characters, for these universes? Well, these characters and these universes have been in my life my whole life. Sure. So and things change all the time. People come and go. Management changes, you know, um, and some people will show up with better ideas. And it's all perspective, too, because I kind of felt that. If I got back into editing comics full time now in the DCU, they're not going to change because I show up and I'm like, no. you know, stop the characters from raping each other. I'm not, you know, I'm not that. I, and I realize I'm, I can't be that guy. You kids stop. Yeah. But there's a way to tell th- those kind of stories in a different way, you know. And I don't know if it's all personalities, too. Like, I don't know if anybody's raising their hand and being like, hey, guys, wait a minute. Can we look at this for a second and really kind of. Figure out why, why, why this and not that. Right. You know, I want to be that guy, rabble okay. rouser, if you will. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm all um, for the rabble being. There, there's no. I mean, comics never going to be this sort of wholesome fantasy universe again. You know, that, and that's fine. But this, there's this, this other extreme that's happening, and it just needs to be reined in a little bit. And I think it can be done without anybody really noticing. You and know? Do, you, do you think having worked on? Nickelodeon properties for as long as you did has any effect on your your attitude? No, because I don't no. want I don't want to turn you know nowadays when you hear all ages comics it's the sort of cartoony Johnny DC yeah. Archie comics kind of stuff. I don't want to turn comics into that kind of thing, and I don't want to do a line of those kind of comics. I don't want to do kitty comics. Yeah. You know, I want to do comics for general audience, general audience that you can give to a kid that I as a forty four year old can read and enjoy, yeah. and you know. Give to the neighborhood kid and be like, hey, this is, good. this is a good, you know, Batman comic. Go read it. But that's getting off the topic. Topic was you being the rabble rouser now. If I could, if they would let me be the rabble rouser, I would certainly. And the end guy. goal being? To edit good comics. Although being an editor, you know, you can't edit a good comic every month. Like yeah. crap will find its way through when the deadlines are on your back. Right. Um, but an editor editing good superhero comics. That For those 50,000 people. For those, yeah. I want to edit comics that people find entertaining and different, but familiar enough that the guy, the characters that were in them that you know, you know, you're, you want to keep coming back. So given the choice between editing a Teen Titans book, yeah, <clears throat> the way you see it, the way you envision it, or editing original graphic novels at Scholastic or somewhere else, you I'd, want to do... I'd rather edit Teen Titans. I'd rather write Teen Titans, to be honest. But okay. um, yeah, I'd rather edit Teen Titans. Hmm. I, I like team books in general. For the idea. <laughs> no, no, but but I, I would rather deal with preserving the legacy. I mean, I know that, that sounds lame. No, no. It's, you know, it's, but there's no judgment. <laughs> right. But I know how that sounds. It's like, what do I, you know, like the, they're, they're artificial, they're constructs. They're not real. So whether they success, succeed or fail, it has no, no bearing on my life. But I want to make sure these characters are around. They're treated well, you know. I get the... the sort of infectious power of superheroes. I love them. Right. But whereas I go in the route of I'll create my own. So I am always just interested in different people's sort of takes, you know, how some people become more attached to the, the characters and the properties in the same way that there are people that are very attached to paper, physical comics yeah. and making sure the corners are good and they're bagged and boarded. Uh-huh. And then there are people more like me who don't treat their comics very well. But you just want the story. I want the story, yeah, and I want them right. cheap, and, I, and I'll take them digitally right. if they're going to be cheaper, uh-huh. and I can just consume. Like, I just want to consume content, uh-huh. which gets into trouble when I'm spending more time consuming than creating, but mm-hmm. that's my own that's my own cross to <laughs> yeah. bear. Got it. Um, so I just find it interesting. Yeah. You're not the only person with this sort of attitude. Right. I, I kind of look at it this way, and not to, not to get too off track, but um, – I've got this whole soap opera thing There's going on. You know? So, you know, you got three soaps on ABC. You have All My Children, One Life to Live, General Hospital. Uh, all three have pretty much been on for 40-ish years, give or take. Writers come and go. Characters come and go. Just recently, two of those shows, All My Children, One Life to Live, 
have been given cancellation notices. They're on every day. You grow up with them. You think they'll never go away. But it happens because the ratings go down. Why do the ratings go down? Well, you could argue, oh, there are other things to watch. People are more attracted to primetime or reality shows or what have you. But there's also – it comes down to writing as well. And we're dealing with legacy characters. you know. And when you're, when you're watching the same characters day after day, year after year, evolve and grow, and a new writer comes in or a new you know, head of the network mm-hmm. and suddenly decides, you know, I like mobsters and I only like mobsters. I don't care if the show's called General Hospital. It's going to be about the mob. And the show becomes that 75% of the time, if not more, people stop watching. And I don't know if comics will ever go away, but uh, I never thought soap operas would go away either. Right. You know? um, and there's every chance in the world that these comics could just become licensed properties. What's yeah. big? Superman, Batman, maybe Wonder Woman? Who the hell knows? You know, Man on the Street doesn't know who Flash is really. Not right. really. You know? So, you know, comics can go away too. You got to take care of you know, tend to your garden, you know? Right. Uh, and I don't think there's enough tending. You're the though. gardener. That's right. I want to be the gardener. I, I do love me some Bendis. I, I do. I can't, I can't. It doesn't do anything for me. His stories aren't, as stories, aren't great, but his dialogue just flows for me. I'd I rather read Read that stuff than, all the time. But then speaking of the gardener thing, I'd rather read him do Powers, or Torso, or the stuff he did on his own uh-huh. than... Like I read, I mean, for what I remember reading, I'd read his Hawkeye. It didn't. His Hawkeye didn't seem any different than any other character. They all talk similar. It's the sort of Buffyism yeah. style. Yeah. yeah. Which I don't think. I mean, I've tried to watch Buffy again, and it just doesn't. It just seems written. Uh huh. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Yeah. Well, there comes a point when it, it it's natural, and then they sort of become self aware. Yeah. The writers, and then it, then it is sort of written like you need to be there needs to be a quip here. Insert quip. Yeah. That kind of thing. And, and when every character is a smartass like Hawkeye, Hawkeye's not Hawkeye anymore. Mm-hmm. Now you've got like Iron Man mouthing off. But yeah, everybody's just mouthing off one all off. the time. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you. I'm and it just you. doesn't – the dynamic isn't there. Part of what made the Avengers awesome, aside from them being like a, a occasionally weird cobbling of heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just it doesn't – the characters don't ring true to me. I mean I read a couple of issues of Fear Itself. Yes. Okay, I read those. And – Thor didn't sound like Thor. Like the dynamics were weird. Like the fact that he's calling his dad a like an old bastard. <laughs> it just doesn't. Really yeah, I, I get you. I get you. And I, I feel like all these guys were hired because they have specific voices. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's Braxton's voice or Bendis's voice or whatever. They, you know, Brubaker. All these guys have a voice. Right. But there's a weird in terms of being a gardener. Like, how much of that voice do you let in and how much right. of the character's voice do you have well, to Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm not down with this. Uh, I mean, Marvel's saying it just straight up. And DC is a little more discreet. But Marvel is, has this double-page spread. Like, here are our writers. And it's these four guys standing in a group. Right. And if you're not one of these guys, F you because, you know, you're just not good enough. You know, right. these guys are driving the car. And I don't think that's fair. And I don't think that's wise. Well, that also goes to the other big argument in modern comics, which is aside from the talent on a book selling the book, it has to matter. It has to count. Mm -hmm. And by saying that these four or five writers are writing the stories that matter, they're guaranteeing people are going to want to buy those books. Right. But if you're a writer who's writing Avengers Academy and you're not sitting in that little huddle of guys dressed in black, then you don't count. You know, tough. It's just interesting in terms of using the gardener metaphor, Uh which I'm now clinging to. (laughs) I've never thought of it that way, but it is this, you know, and I remember when I worked for Tom, the rule was because we would work on, we worked on the books and I would come in and be like, what if we did this, 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 and this, Tom would call me down and say, our job is not to write these stories. We're to hire writers and help them tell their stories, which is a, a perfectly reasonable editorial idea. I agree completely. Yeah. But I also think on some level, and maybe this is from my experience in licensing, as the editor, you also have to protect or garden the character as well. Mm -hmm. So you have to be the balance between, that's a great idea, writer X, but Hercules wouldn't do that. One of the editor's biggest jobs is to say no. Right. And I don't think a lot of writers hear no nowadays. I agree. I think now it's, here's my script. When can I see pencils? And that's it. 
you know, um, every word is golden, which, you know, I don't even see how that helps the writer at all. You need, I mean, I've written lots of comics. You need somebody to be like, wait, rephrase this if, if, or it, something, you know? When does it become fan fiction? Right. 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 You're getting paid a lot of money to write fan fiction. And with, with no, yeah, no, I agree completely. Yeah. It's, That's not my, uh, Smitty brought that up once. He's like, what, who cares anymore? Right. Like at this point, it's, it's, it's fan fiction. Right. You're just sort of, oh, I want, uh, I don't know. Name a character to do this. Yeah, and they'll let you. And it just happens. All right. And I don't know why it's the, the I don't know if uh, I shouldn't sort of lay my opinions on other people, but I don't know why it's it's accepted, expected almost, that this is the dynamic now, that writers aren't really questioned. I mean, some writers are in positions of power at certain companies. Yeah. And when your boss is writing a comic, yes. uh, all right, you know, that's already a weird situation. But when it's not your boss, when it's some guy in you know Chicago who's sending his email or documents over, mm-hmm. why why can't you say no to Bendis or or anybody? Right. You know. I think there's a certain amount of I don't know if it's a backlash against the mid '90s, but this notion of the artists had their shot, they blew it. Mm-hmm. Writers are running the room now. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. This notion of yeah, yeah. The reason why there was a boom and a bust in the early 90s is because artists started writing stuff and everything got crappy. <laughs> Writers are going to shepherd this thing from now uh-huh, on. Uh-huh. Especially after Heroes Reborn. But that's another example of dumb uh, artists going style over substance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then now there's this sort of, oh, Neil Gaiman writes great comics. Or Alan Moore writes great comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So full of literacy that that's, the game is just changed. Yeah. The writers are running the show right now. Uh-huh. And there's also this weird, it's not as prevalent now as it was, say, five years ago, but the sort of Hollywoodization was, of comics. You know, I could be a great writer and pitch, I don't know, a, a new Firestorm series. You know, nobody will give me the time of day. But if I wrote a couple of Big Bang Theory scripts yeah. that aired a year and a half ago, they'd give me a miniseries. Boom, done. Well, I think there's, in the quest for legitimacy, the comic side, the comics have become more like TV shows. I just read the first trade of Greg Rucka's Wonder Woman, and it felt like I was reading—I was reading a Wonder Woman TV show. Didn't really do a lot of Wonder Woman stuff. It read fine. Mm-hmm. Is this notion of this quest for legitimacy goes to this Hollywoodization, which is we should write our comics like TV shows, a writer's room. We get together, we break the stories, which seems to be what happens now. I don't go to these meetings. But you end up getting comics that read more like hour-long primetime dramas. Mm-hmm. You could do mature things in a mature way. Yeah. Well, let's put it that way. Yes. You know? I agree. Don't do mature things as like a 12-year-old envisions mature things, which is what we get nowadays. Right. You know? I think the mentality, it's a very sort of like is it, is little it, boy see, sort of, oh, it's bloody, so it's good. I think it's more a 19-year-old. Okay. I don't think a 12 year old thinks about the stuff that's happening in comics. I think it's somebody, I'm remembering myself in college. Mm-hmm. The sort of weird crap, you'd be like, this character should do this with no respect for <laughs> what anything. had come before. Right. I think that's what's going on. Yeah. It's being sold, being written by or sold to that 18, 19 year old who wants to keep reading comics but is embarrassed. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. So the comics have to be legit Look, for 18, 19-year-olds. This, this could get me in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyway. Right. I think shame at the time was probably a huge factor in this whole identity crisis thing. Because you got these guys showing up, and they're like, I love the Satellite Justice League. They're awesome. They're my favorite characters ever. And the first thing they did was go back to that time and Rape make it. it gritty. Make it gritty. You know, make it dark. And then there's a classic Justice League story where the Secret Society of Supervillains switches bodies with the Justice Leaguers. Okay. It's like a three-issue arc. And it was an arc for 1978, you know? Classic story. Grew up reading it as a boy. Uh, they revisited that. And, yeah, that's what happened. Also, this horrible stuff was going on behind the scenes that we couldn't talk about until now. And I think a lot of that is like the sort of the, the Marvel shame. Because when you're a kid and you're a, a little boy or, well, girl, I guess, mm-hmm. reading DC Comics, yeah, I got a lot of crap from other kids. Oh, Thor can kick Superman's ass. You know, Superman's a sissy. Yeah. Um, I got a lot of that. Um, so now this is their way of making, if you go back and read those stories again, Superman's not a sissy because you just didn't get the whole story until now. You know? Like, stop being ashamed. Those comics were good. They're fine. And they're you know? good 
for the audience they were intended for. Right. It's kind of like, imagine a world 30 years from now, 60 years from now, where some fool gets his hand on Star Wars. And it's like, you know, this is really good, but it's silly. I think it would be really cool if Luke and Leia slept together before she found out that they were brother and sister. Let's just, let's do that. Let's make that a thing. And it's like, why? Why? It's fine the way it is. You know? Yeah. It's that kind of, it, it skews me out. You know, Star Wars is silly. Yeah. But when you're the right age, it's the greatest yeah. thing in the world. It's the greatest. <laughs> you mentioned writing Teen Titans. You do writing on the side, but for the most part, you're writing American Idol recaps. Well, I haven't written anything in like a year. But, uh, yeah, I've written – I recapped American Idol for like four years. Uh, right. I've written tons of Nickelodeon comics. But you also – I mean, outside of comics, you do those reviews. You had a, a brief dalliance with writing a, a Dan Savage-esque uh, advice, advice column. column. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've written a bit of porn. <laughs> that, does, that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. Um, and, uh, yeah, what else have I done? Um, a friend of mine – and I used to get together. We, we were trying to pitch various TV series. Well, that's what uh, I was so that never, never saw the light of day, but we... I was, was going to get to that, which is you, you still have this love for TV. Obviously, you have this passion for soap operas and TV and the medium. Yeah. And you know people in TV. Yeah, not really. You know, Chuck. Well, yeah, Chuck wrote for Heroes, but he's not... Right. Yeah. I don't know. It just <laughs> seems like, like there's an in. Right, right. A potential in outside of comics. Yeah. That you that could be somehow pursued. The, the one barrier that will forever keep me from working in television. You're afraid to fly. I, well, I'm afraid to fly, and I will, would never, under any circumstance, live on the West Coast. That's just not even. That's not even an option. Okay. You know, if DC came to me tomorrow and we're like, you can be the king of everything, and whatever you want is what we'll do. The only catch is you have to live in California. I would be like, I'm going to remain a temp freelancer. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Won't right. do it. So that's that's my television barrier if i could yeah. work here i'd certainly do it and you would say they make soap operas here but they're not even really making those anymore. no there's only one and it's done in january so that's it um but my plan when i started when i was a kid aside from wanting to be a cop yeah <laughs> yeah i when i went to college my, my goal was to write for television and i very specifically wanted to be the head writer of general hospital very it was very i had a, a i had a Target, and I was going for it. And, I, and so my major was media arts, and I took a lot of TV classes and screenwriting classes. You write, and uh, you haven't written in a while, but you have like spec scripts that you've written. Um, like well, when law and order. my friend Dave and I, no, all of our scripts are for the shows that we created. Okay. Um, I've people have suggested writing uh, spec scripts for shows that exist. Yeah, but it gets into this weird again, this fan fiction kind of place where I'm like, who am I doing this for? Like, am I gonna? Do I have time to even pursue this? Like, if I write a I was going to say charm, like that's even on the air anymore. But if I, if I write, you know. Say law uh, and order because uh, it takes place in New York. There you, you go. If I write a law and order, like, you know, where's it going to get me to do this? I just feel get like I would. agent gets you a possible job at writing? I guess. I, I, I guess. I don't know. It's like do a comic yeah. sample. Like we couldn't find an agent with our pitches that we had. Right. My friend and I. And we worked hard at trying to get one. Um, I mean, we weren't doing spec scripts, so maybe that would change things. I don't know. But I mean, sooner or later, I'd have to take a meeting somewhere. I wouldn't be here. <laughs> you could always Skype it. I could Skype it. That's right. Look, Aretha Franklin doesn't fly, and she's had a damn fine career. She's managed. True. Yeah. You are, you are like Aretha <laughs> <Yes>. Franklin. <laughs> We're often confused. <laughs> Frank? Greg? Thank you, man. You're welcome, Greg. I appreciate you taking the time. Happy to be here. Got Thanks it. for having me. Got it. Bye. There you go. That is Frank Pitterese. He's a good dude. I like Frank. I thank him again for taking the time to talk to me. Now, I know some of you are, are, were listening thinking, uh, hey, that guy works at DC, and, and, and they talk about the new DC 52. The big launch, the real the initiative. 52 new number ones in September. It's September. How could they not talk about this? Listen, two things. One... That conversation was recorded well in advance of the the new 52 initiative. Two, because of that, I tend to not talk about 
current events as such in those conversations. It just uh, for the sake for the sake of argument, let's just say that these conversations happen in a in a reality untouched by current events, which is a ridiculous thing to say. I recognize that. That said, I think it was still a relevant conversation. I don't know. What do you think? You can let me know. You can email me through the website, stuffsaidshow.com, or email me at stuffsaid at gmail.com. Speaking of the website, go to it. Check it out. There's extra stuff on there. There's artwork. There's links, etc., etc. There's also links on there to other websites. One of them is stickfigurenightlive.com. If you've been sitting there wondering, hey, uh, I like this monthly free podcast that Greg's doing, but what else is Greg giving away for free? Go to stickfigurenightlive.com starting after September 24th, 2011, which is the season premiere of Saturday Night Live. If you go on like the Monday or Tuesday afterwards, there will be a webcomic. It's my weekly-ish webcomic where I watch Night Live. As I watch it, I draw it in stick figure form. I then post that comic. I don't know if I explained that well enough. If you go to the site right now, you can relive the entire last season and see exactly what, what it is I'm doing over there. Anyway, stickfigurenightlive.com. Yeah, that's a plug. I'm plugging myself. I'm plugging myself for a thing that is free. So, yeah. Anyway, more show next month. Until then, that's about all the stuff I have to say. <laughs> <laughs>